0: Father, we come to your word, um, and we come to your word humbly, and we ask that you would grant us wisdom this morning, that the Spirit would open up our ears to hear what we need to hear, to convict us as we need to be convicted, um, and to help us to respond um, appropriately. Be with us this morning, help us to stay focused this morning upon your truth, Um, help us to not be distracted by what's going on um, out there in this world or in our lives, Father, help us to feast upon the word that is before us. And also, Father, be with the hunters who are out there trying to catch that deer. Uh, Bless them with a good uh, bounty. Um, And may they be grateful um, and recognize um, who has given them uh, such a bounty, Father, but give them safety so that they can come back here next Sunday with us um, and continue to worship you and glorify you. And Father, we ask all these things for your glory by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen go ahead and open up to Second Samuel chapter two. Uh, if you need a Bible, we have Bibles in the back, you're more than welcome to keep that Bible. Um, and if you know people who don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to take one or two Bibles and you can take a stack of Bibles and hand them out if you want. Uh, we, we're more than willing to give, get rid of those Bibles to, be, to bless others. And on that note, um, if you know somebody who you would like to gift a Bible please feel free to reach out to the church. We would be happy to purchase that Bible uh, for somebody. Um, If you are, you know, if you're concerned about paying for it, we we have the funds here at Hope to buy Bibles. Uh, So we would be happy to buy a brand new unused Bible for anyone whom you might want to gift uh, this uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas season. So go ahead and open up 2 Samuel 2. Now, intrigue is all around us. History is full of people plotting and scheming for their own gain. We see it within our own governments, especially of late. Uh, We also see it, though, within our workplaces and within our families. And intrigue is an interesting thing. We love watching it, right? All the good shows on Netflix and Amazon, they're full of intrigue. Um, And it's the intrigue that keeps us just, keeps us watching just one more episode rather than going to bed, right? You watch it, and the way the show ends is like, oh, I, I, just, I just need to watch. They purposely did that, so I keep on clicking next episode. But the thing is, with intrigue, as much as we love watching it, we, we're not necessarily big fans of it when it's actually in our lives. When we realize that the intrigue, the, the plotting, the scheming is actually going around in our own lives, and perhaps some of that scheming we recognize is not for our own good. Um, and maybe it is for our own good, but we're not sure. We, we can't control it. So when we recognize intrigue, when we recognize plotting and scheming in our lives, whether it's within our government, within our families, or in our workplaces, or we are victims of it, how do we respond? How do we feel? What are we to do when the intrigue is beyond our control or perhaps even beyond our knowledge? Well, today in 2 Samuel, we're going to see a nation in the midst of an uncertain and tumultuous time. We're going to cover chapters 2 through 4. And if you like intrigue and trauma, drama, there is enough here in these three chapters for a full season of a Netflix original series. But we must remember this. What we read here this morning is not a Netflix series. It is not fiction. It is history. It is real. It happened. The people who died in these chapters were real people. So in these 80-something verses, the author is going to cover about seven years' worth of history for us. It starts with David's reign in Hebron, which began about 1012 B.C. Now that's 93 years after the birth of Samuel, whom we read about in 1 Samuel, who was the son of Hannah. You remember Hannah in 1 Samuel 1? She had the barren womb, and then she prayed and she gave birth to Samuel. 10-12 uh, BC is also 13 years since the time that Samuel anointed David in 1 Samuel 16 to be the next king of Israel, which happened back in 1025 BC. So let's go ahead and dive in, and we'll start with uh, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahanoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron, and the men of Judah came, and, they were, and there they anointed David, king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So here we have two kings that are presented to us. The first king that we read about is, of course, uh, David, whom we are familiar with. He begins for us this morning by inquiring of God about, should I go back into Judah? Should I return to Judah? And where specifically should I go? And God tells him, yes, go back to Judah and go to Hebron. Now Hebron is a city that's 26 miles northeast of where David's currently at in Ziklag. And it's 20 miles south-southwest of Jerusalem. So why Hebron? Well, for one, it has good Jewish history uh, behind it. It is in Hebron in Genesis 13 that Abraham resided for a while, the oaks at Mamre, and he built an altar to the Lord. And then it's also where Sarah and the patriarchs are buried, so it is a significant uh, city uh, for the Israelites. But it's also a Calebite city, as we read in Joshua 14, 14, and um, as we learn in 1 Samuel, uh, David is a Calebite. He's of the Calebite uh, clan, the descendants. And his wife, Abigail, was married to Nabal, who was a powerful, wealthy, influential Calebite. So David probably has, uh, through that marriage, already a strong presence, a strong influence in Hebron. Hebron is also a city for the Aaronic priesthood, and it's also a city of refuge, uh, which 21.13 tells us both of these things. That's significant because it allows David protection just in case anyone believes he is responsible at all for the death of Saul and his sons and they're seeking vengeance. You cannot seek vengeance without a first a trial in a city of of refuge. You can't just kill the man for payback. So David gets protection in there. It is also one of the places that David, after he destroys the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 30, he takes part of the spoil. Hebron was one of the many cities of Judah that he shared his spoils with. Thus, He already has that favor, he already has um, the good relationship with Hebron. So David, his relatives, his men and their relatives, they all move there and they settle in and around the area of Hebron. Verse 3 says, the towns of Hebron, indicating the area outside of the walled city. So Hebron is probably a massive settlement already. David and his men are about to include the families, one to 2,000 people. So they need a city that can accommodate uh, a good size of people. The men of Judah, once David is there, the men of Judah, the elders, they anoint David as king over the house of Israel. Not over, excuse me, over the house of Judah. Not over the house of Israel. Not over the whole nation. Just the house of Judah. Now remember Right, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, you know that when, after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits up. Right? You have the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. If you remember 1 Samuel, that cultural divide between Judah and Israel already existed. A uh, couple of occasions when the troops are being counted for battle, that's how they're counted. The men of Judah and the men of Israel. So there's already this cultural divide, this tension uh, between the two. Now, you might be wondering, why did they anoint David? Did not Samuel already anoint David as king 13 years earlier, as recorded in 1 Samuel 16? Yes. But let's consider that anointing back in 1025 BC. That's like election night, right? The, the winner is decided in most cases. Um, and then this anointing is like the inauguration, right? It's, it's the formality. It's, it's uh, for, for the fulfillment of that's anointing. So it's, it's not a necessarily a new anointing. This is more of a fulfillment of the original anointing uh, by the prophet and judge uh, Samuel. So at some point, David hears of the actions of the men of Jabesh Gilead that they took, the, the daring mission that they took overnight to retrieve the bodies of Saul and his sons. Um, and he honors them. And in doing so, he again, reflects his righteousness, his compassionate character, and his wisdom uh, to his opponent's house and those who would be loyal to the house of Saul. Remember, Jabesh-Gilead is the city that became under siege by Nahash, um, and it was Saul's first major victory that solidified him as king over all of Israel. So, So, Jabesh, they are deeply loyal, deeply faithful to Saul. And here David is extending an olive branch and he is honoring them for what they did. So in Hebron, David reigns for seven years and six months, which afterwards, as we'll cover next week, he then moves to Jerusalem. But the second king, Ishbosheth, he's also mentioned here, though in a much smaller uh, amount of space, and he doesn't play much of a role in, in the Old Testament or in the chapters here today, unfortunately for him. We have Abner, who was the general of Saul's army, and at some point, in some manner, some fashion, he finds a way to get Saul's youngest son onto the throne, and he places him on the throne to rule over Israel in Mahanaim, which is 46 miles northeast of Saul's hometown of Gibeah, and it's 30 miles east of Mount Gilboa, where the Israelites and Saul were defeated. Mahanaim also has a history as Mahanaim in Genesis 32-2 is where Jacob, when he's fleeing um, his cousin Laban, uh, sees, his, uh, sees the two camps, his own camp and the camp of God. So Mahanaim has its own history as well. Now Saul, he had four sons. We read about three of them dying in 1 Samuel 31-2. Jonathan, Abinadab, Melchashua. And Ishbosheth, being the youngest, was left out of the battle. And it wasn't because of age, because he's probably about 35-ish, um, when that battle takes place. More than likely, Saul kept his youngest son from going into battle in case they all get slaughtered. And maybe he made the decision after uh, the spirit of Samuel came back uh, from the dead with his encounter with the, the witch at Endor and told him, hey, you're going to die tomorrow along with your sons. And so Saul's like, well, not all of them. I'm going to keep one from the battle. Um, and so Ishbosheth uh, is left to rule on the throne. But he only reigns for two years before David assumes control of both Judah and Israel. So consider that Ishbosheth reigns for two years, but David has, is ruling in Hebron for seven years and six months. So that by that account, David has been reigning for, in Judah for at least about five years since Saul has died. And Ishbosheth hasn't been sitting on the throne for five years. So what has been going on during uh, this time? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us. We can only infer. Uh, what possibly could have been going on. Possibly after the defeat, maybe the Philistines contain, retained control of the Israelite territory. And maybe Abner was serving as some sort of de facto head of state, um, or maybe he wasn't. Either way, at this point, maybe the Philistine control pressure um, over the Israelite territory has been um, waning, or at least improving to where Ishbosheth was able to um, assume the throne of his father. And he does so at the age of 40. And by assuming the role of the throne of Israel, the, clearly the tension between Judah and Israel is now escalated as they now both have kings, both claiming to be the king over all the tribes. So let's go ahead and read 2 Samuel uh, chapter 2, verses 12-32, to 32, and see how the relations between these two kingdoms work out. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And they arose and passed over by number. Twelve were Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve are the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner, the men of Israel, were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Now, Azahel was as swift as a wild gazelle, and Azahel pursued Abner, And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then can I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Emma, which lies before Gia on their way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So Abner and his men, they go to Gibeon, um, and we text us and tell us why they're making this march towards Gibeon. And perhaps it could just be one of military strategy. They're looking to test Uh, David's influence tests the military might of David. Maybe it's a probing mission for them, so to speak, to see what they can stir up, or if there would be anything that would be stirred up. And in their movement, their movement uh, causes David's men to go out and meet them at Gibeon. Now, I have a picture of the pool of Gibeon. Uh, It should be up there on the next one. So that There is, that's a picture of what uh, archaeologists believe is the actual site of the Pool of Gibeon. Um, It's a hand-carved reservoir about 37 feet in diameter and about 82 uh, feet in deep. Uh, The staircase uh, goes about 35 feet down, and then there's a shaft that goes another 45 vertical feet down to where the fresh water would be. So this is a picture of that pool at the site where uh, these group of men met. Now, David's men are being led by his nephew, uh, Joab, the son of David's sister, Zeruiah. You you know, I messed up on this name so many times last night. And then I went home and I practiced it. I practiced it. I practiced it. I, practiced it, I read it in Hebrew. I'm like, I'm going to get it. Now I just, I, it's just gone. Anyway, just how it rolls. So Joab, he's the oldest of three boys. He has two other brothers, Azahel and Abishai. We know Abishai. We read about Abishai in 1 Samuel 26.6. He was with David when David went into uh, Samuel, uh, excuse me, Saul's camp in the middle of the night. Saw Saul and Abner sleeping there. Took the spear, took the water jug by uh, Saul's head. David mocked and insulted Abner. Uh, so Abishai, he's familiar with um, Abner. He knows who he is, knew him personally, probably knew him personally before uh, David went on the lamb from from Saul. Uh, So we know of Abishai, Abishai, and it's interesting that in uh, 1 Samuel 26, the way that Abishai is introduced to us is, is by saying he's the brother of Joab. Like, we're not introduced to Joab really officially until now, but in 1 Samuel 26, that's how we hear of Joab is Abishai, the brother of Joab. And what that's saying is, Joab is a significant figure in Israelite history. That the reader, the hearer of 1 Samuel is like, I know who Joab is. He's a big dude. He's a big, very important figure in Israelite history. And now we finally get to see him um, enter into the scene um, explicitly. So, Joab and his brothers... um, they are here with, uh, against Abner's men. They know Abner. They probably know some of the men standing across from them. They have this um, intense standoff um, between the two, which Abner suggests a very unique situation to try to resolve it. He says, hey, let's take 12 wrong men, 12 of your men, and let's have them fight together. This is unusual. We don't have any other instance of something like this happening in Israelite history. The closest one, of course, would be David and Goliath, the, one, the 1v1 situation that we have going on there. But even that was incredibly unique, right? Goliath had to explain the rules to the Israelites on uh, how that's going to work out. This place is so unique that it even gets its own name. Uh, so that's how we know this 12 for 12 is an unusual um, tactic to be used for fighting, Um, And unfortunately, as quickly as it started, it ended. For both of the men, they grab each other. And if you're close enough and you've both got daggers or short swords, even if you get stabbed, you're going to be able to stab the other guy more than likely. And so they all fall down together. There's no clear winner. um, And following that is a fierce fight. A fierce fight that lands in favor of David's men, in favor of Joab. So Abner and his men, they flee. Now Asahel, he has his eyes focused on Abner. Text doesn't tell us why. Maybe they have some bad blood between each other, personal bad blood, or maybe Azahel is just thinking, I can kill the snake if I go for the head. Maybe he's trying to be that hero. I, if I get Abner, we can put this all to rest. Because Abner is trying to discourage Azahel. Once he re- realizes it's Azahel who's chasing him, who's apparently pretty quick, he's like, turn away, go kill somebody else. Like Abner is encouraging Azahel, go kill one of my other men rather than attack me. And Abner, he, he, he shows some wisdom here, right? He's, it's not just only for his preservation, I think, and perhaps he wasn't afraid of, to fight Azahel. I think he's more afraid of killing Azahel, right? He knows that Azahel is Joab's brother. And I think what Abner is trying to do here is to maintain as many bridges as he can during this time of transition, this time of uncertainty, recognizing that you know, maybe this Ishbosheth thing doesn't work out and David does become keen, as even Saul said himself that he would. Maybe I need to keep these bridges um, for after all this happens. And he recognizes that if he slays Asahel, he's burning that bridge with Joab. So he tries to persuade Asahel. Asahel doesn't disengage. And then the butt end of Abner's spear goes through Asahel, not just into him, right? But all the way through. And so that highlights the force, the speed of which Asahel is running, because the butt end of the spear, it's, it's blunt. It might, there might be a little point there, but it's not like the front end of the spear that's sharp on the front as well as on the sides. It would take a lot of force to go through a human body uh, and to come out of the back. Um, and, and the fact that it is the butt end of the spear also highlights that this isn't something Abner wanted to do. If Abner wanted to kill Asahel, he could have turned around and. Use the front end of the spirits. It's almost as if the text is saying, As the hell brought this upon himself. And this is going to come into play later. And in the manner that As the hell dies, it, it's, it's, it's so graphic, it's so uh, violent, it's so shocking that the people who are actually slaying each other, right, who are actually cutting each other up, when they see this happen, they stop and they stand still. Uh, and so that. It's a very graphic scene, but only two people continue fighting. They continue pursuing, and of course, that's the brothers of Asahel, Joab and Abishai. And they continue to chase Abner. But Abner finds a hill where his tribe, the Benjamites, rally around him. Um, And that slows Joab and Abishai down. And Abner convinces Joab, hey, let's stop the bloodshed. Let's end it for the night. And Joab agrees. They relent and the two groups go their separate ways. Now, in the aftermath, David's servants suffered 20 casualties total. Abner's men lost 360. That's a 1 to 18 ratio. That is a significant beatdown from one party to the other. And you might think that maybe when Abner returned, he might be like, that one did not go as I had hoped. And maybe he would think, maybe we should just you know, throw in the towel." But that is not the case. In fact, the the violence only continues and the intrigue only gets thicker. So let's continue and read Second Samuel chapter three, verses one through thirty-nine. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David of Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahanoam of Jezreel, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Kamel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Tamai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephati- Shephati- Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David of Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now, Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Ea. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not "'given you into the hand of David, "'and yet you charge me today "'with a fault concerning a woman? "'God do so to Abner and more also, "'if I do not accomplish for David "'what the Lord has sworn to him, "'to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul "'and set up the throne of David over Israel "'and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. "'And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner "'another word because he feared him. "'And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, "'saying, "'To whom does the land belong?' Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you, can't, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to ish Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, for whom I pay the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Nishboshet sent and took her from her husband, Pateel, the son of Laish, But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return, and he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going now and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel his brother afterward when David heard of it he said I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner the son of Ner may it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house and may the house of Job never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread so Joab and Abishai his brother killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab, and all the people who were with him, "'Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner.' And King David followed the buyer. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, "'Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen.' And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. As everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So a lot has happened here. We're, we're, we're told at the beginning, there's a long war happening between the house of David and the house of Saul. And the house of David, they're winning the war. Then we're informed of the children of David that David has had at his time during Hebron and the wives that he has acquired there as well. And he has acquired these wives most likely for political reasons um, as well. There might be some selfish desire in there as well. But I'm sure there's a political gain um, in unifying uh, the people of Judah, unifying the house of um, Judah under him by by spreading out his his, uh, marital influence, so to speak. But during this war, Abner also makes himself grow an in influence among the house of Saul. Perhaps Abner recognized that Ishbosheth is a weak man, one that can be easily manipulated, and maybe that's why Abner put him on the throne to begin with. Maybe Abner all along has been planning to control the house of Israel as the puppet master, uh, so to speak. In Ishbosheth, he's apparently becoming suspicious of Abner. We don't know why. It could be because of the accusation that Ishbosheth makes here. He he has, it actually happened, and he has reason to make this accusation. It might not be a false accusation. And if it's not a false accusation, what Abner is doing here is a great offense. To sleep with the king's concubine, a a privilege, a right reserved for the one sitting on the throne, is a sense saying, I'm sitting on the throne. I have the authority to do what a king gets to do, and that's to sleep with the king's concubines. So by Ichboshet saying this, he's saying, "Why are you doing this?" And Abner either he's responding either because he knows that what Ishbosheth has said is true, and he knows that Ishbosheth's a weak man, or he didn't do it, and he's truly offended. We we don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us that. But Abner responds by essentially committing open treason. I mean, he tells the king, "I vow to God that if I don't hand this kingdom to the hand of David, may God do so, whatever He wants to me." And ish though he hears Abner saying, I'm going to betray you, I'm going to give your throne to David, ish does nothing. He's more afraid. He doesn't say a word to Abner. So it's at this point that Abner, he initiates communication, positive relations with David, forms a covenant with David. Uh, in return, and part of this covenant, uh, Ab- uh, Abner has to help get uh, David's first wife, Michal, back to him. Now, remember, Michal was taken from David, from King Saul, because, well, Michal is Saul's daughter, um, and Saul didn't want David to have any claim to the throne, um, wanted to keep him as far away from any claim to the throne as possible, so gave Michal away to another person. David did not divorce Michal, which is important, because in the Torah, if you divorce a woman, you can't remarry her. You can't go back to her, right? You You can't do that, but David never did that. This was done against his wishes, so by the law, he's permitted to ask for her back. Ishbosheth um, agrees to it, sends her back, and unfortunately for her husband, he appears to be the one that's truly heartbroken over it. We don't know Michal's response um, in the culture. It probably wouldn't have mattered, uh, but the husband is weeping for quite some distance until Abner and his men stand in his way and tell him, hey, go return home. So after this, Abner uses influence to get the rest of Israel's elders to support David but not just the elders of Israel, the elders of Benjamin. And that's important. Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin. They were part of Saul's inner circle. This is like the, the, the big key political party, the one tribe that David really has to win over. So Abner is able to do this. And because Abner is able to do this, David has a feast for Abner and all of Israel He sends Abner away in peace to retrieve the elders of Israel, to retrieve the elders of Benjamin, to bring them back to Hebron, to really formalize this whole process. But before Abner is able to do this, an unexpected tragedy comes. Another plot twist happens. Joab returns from a raid, learns of David's actions of Abner, and he's not pleased. So before Abner is able to do what he was sent out to do in peace, which is highlighted multiple times in text, right, Abner went in peace joab knew that abner went in peace he sends messengers to bring abner back and doesn't tell david of his intentions and abner he's coming back because well he's returning in peace right but not just only that he's in hebron a city of refuge he should not be slain for the murder of asahel if anyone's seeking vengeance abner should be walking into hebron recognizing i am safe here but joab he doesn't care Abner comes in and Joab p- pulls him aside as if he's going to talk to him privately. Abner might be thinking, I wonder what he's got to say. Nothing. It's a sword into his stomach. Kills him there in a city of refuge. A man who was sent out in peace, who probably returned in peace, was met with his own death. And because uh, Joab did that, he was able to get the revenge that he sought for hell. Now, David weeps and he mourns for Abner and he commands those who had any dealing, any kind of support in this matter, you, you need to lead the funeral procession. You need to be mourning for this death. You're going to lead the way. David, in keeping with his righteous character that we talked about last week, he mourns, he fasted, and he wept greatly at Abner's tomb. He weeps in an undignified manner as a king should be doing. And this is what pleases the men of Israel and the men of Benjamin. They see how the king is acting. Imagine Donald Trump weeping over Biden or Biden over Trump. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by that. None of them have the character of David, right? But this is the thing. This this man, this king, he doesn't have to weep for Abner. He he most certainly doesn't have to weep uncontrollably at his tomb um, in what would be considered an undignified manner for a king, but he does because he is a righteous man. He is a compassionate man. So, David's response to the death of Abner actually encourages the men of Benjamin, the men of Israel, to submit themselves under the king, uh, the reign of David, as verses 36 and 37 tell us. It is also in this section that we see David referred to for the first time ever in scripture in verse 31 as King David. Right before, he, he, you know, he's, he, he could be referred to as the king in reference to the house of Judah, but here he is king david and five more times following that he's referred to as Keen before this chapter ends and this is an intentional act by the author for sure the question is why why would the author highlight this well first it's to highlight that david's reign over the 12 tribes is now absolute even with abner's death even though abner was unable to do it himself The death of Abner ultimately solidified the support from Israel and Benjamin when they saw how David wept for Abner. So now he is King David over the 12 tribes of Israel. And perhaps it's also to encourage the reader that despite all the scheming, all the intrigue, all the violence that's gone on here, God's will is still accomplished. That since 1 Samuel God has had it in his plan. David is going to sit on the throne, and no man is going to stop that. Fortunately, though, the violence does not end with Abner. For we have three more deaths to read about. One more death, of course. uh, One more death, not of course, but will involve another death in the stomach. That seems to be a common theme in all these uh, key deaths, is that they all get stabbed um, in the stomach. I don't know why that is. I just thought that was an interesting thing um, in this morning's reading. You might be thinking that's kind of dark, but it is what it is. is. Second Samuel 4, 1 through 12. Let's go ahead and read that. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one is Ba'ana, and the name of the other, Rakab, son sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin, from Beroth, For Beroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Berothites fled to Gitaim, and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mopheboshet. Now the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Baanah set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishboshet, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed and his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, to stay on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baanai's brother, the sons of Raman, the Berithites, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every ad- adversity? When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men... Have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Khan, I have to feel sorry for Ishbosheth, uh, for what he is written about is not much. He reigned only for two years and barely did anything mentioning during. Uh, that time, the two men who killed Ishbosheth were fools, thinking they could get a reward for a prize or a prize for slaying Ishbosheth, especially in the manner of which they did it. Remember, David had no intention of killing Ishbosheth. Why? Because remember, First Samuel, Saul made David made a covenant with him. Hey, when I'm gone, you take the throne, surely as Yahweh intends for it to happen. Don't wipe out my house. Let my descendants live. And David said, Sure, y'all do that. David had already made a similar covenant uh, with Jonathan to protect his descendants. But these two men—they apparently—they don't know about it. uh, But their intention is: no, we're going to wipe out the house of Saul for for David, Um, for the exception of um, Mephibosheth, who were briefly introduced here uh, for a brief part, who is the son of Jonathan. He'll come into play later. Hence, why we have the brief introduction um, here anyway, these two men, they want to take it on their own matters. They go, uh, they deceitfully go kill um, Ishbosheth when he is taking a, a nap. Um, and they take the head to David. They think they're going to get something, but all they get is righteousness. They get justice. David tells the men of how he acted when the young Amalekite told him the news of a man who was killed in battle. So how much more so a man who's taking a nap, right? Just take these, the war is over. David has been declared king. Ishbosheth should just be minding his own business, which he was. And these two men, they go looking for trouble, and trouble they get. So David has them executed. They, he has their hands and feet chopped off, and the bodies hung. They are killed. They're, the bodies are treated uh, under a curse. Meanwhile, the head of Ishbosheth, his head is buried in Abner's tomb. Makes you wonder, well, what happened to the body? Well, we, we don't know. You can only speculate there. Now, why didn't, though, this should, we, this should cause us to consider why didn't David treat Joab the same way? It could be argued that what Joab did was far more severe than what these two men did. Joab committed a murder in a city of refuge. He, he, a sacred city, he, an Aaronic priesthood city, Joab committed murder. What he should have done was ask for a trial for Abner to get him uh, to be found guilty of the murder of Asahel. But he probably recognized and knew, well, that's not going to fly, take him to trial, they're going to find him innocent because Asahel was killed one in the midst of a battle, killed with a button of um, Abner's spear. Abner tried to persuade him to um, disengage and Asahel didn't. So it's, it's Asahel's fault. So clearly Abner would not be found guilty of Asahel's bloodshed. So Joab took it upon himself. What Joab did was inexcusable, but yet Joab, he's alive. These two men aren't. The Amalekite isn't. But Joab lives. All David does is put a curse on him. Why does Joab get to live in the other stone? Well, maybe it's because Joab is David's nephew. Right? Maybe that's why. Maybe because it's family. And this also highlights David isn't perfect right? We've been talking about his righteousness, his character, what a good king he is, how he's after God's own heart, but he's still not perfect. Scripture doesn't hide that from us. Later, David will tell Solomon in his, uh, you know, last wishes, so to speak, David tells Solomon, hey, when I'm gone, kill Joab for the murder of Abner. Execute him. So David eventually gets that justice delivered, but it's a really delayed justice. I mean, we're talking a few decades later that this justice gets um, delivered. So David ultimately is not the righteous king that the people of Israel ultimately need. And perhaps that's part of the point, right? We keep looking for this Messiah, the anointed one, and as close as David gets, he's not it. David, King David, fails at the task of leading God's people in perfect righteousness. Only God can rule in perfect righteousness, and speaking of God, where has he been? It seems like when we we're going first through 1 Samuel, God was always coming up. God was always at play, always identified, always credited. But here in chapters 2 through 4, we only hear about him in chapter 2, when David inquires of him. And then after David inquires of him, we get a bunch of violence and a bunch of intrigue being played out by men. But we have to understand this. And this is... If you just pay attention to scripture, this is what we see. That no matter how dark it gets, or how shocking people might act, God is still providentially acting behind the scenes. See, scheming and plotting is part of the nature of sinful man. It's part of who we are. It is in us. I think it's one of the reasons why we love to watch it. right? Why we're so attracted to it, because the flash is like, this is good. I like this because it's inherent to our sinful nature. Psalm 2 speaks of this issue in light of the sovereignty of God. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? In other words, why do they rage and why do they scheme? Why all the intrigue? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He, that's Yahweh, who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Mankind has longed to throw the yoke of God's authority off their backs. And in doing so, they seek to have their own authority over all all other men, and all other nations, And, and as such, they scheme against God, but they also scheme and plot against each other. They rage together. But this is the thing, to think that anything that you and I do, or anything that the government does, is able to happen outside of the sovereign will of God, to think that is foolishness. God, Yahweh, he laughs in mockery at those who Think such things, who act in such a way. In fact, God's judgment is coming for those who think that they can live how they want to live, thinking that there is no authority above them, that they can scheme and plot for their own gain and get away with it. The thing is, judgment is coming, and judgment is going to be meted out by His Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the true King of Israel, and the true King of all creation, who will reign righteously in a way that David could not. And under the rule of Christ, all this intrigue that we see, all this scheming and plotting by mankind, it will come to an end because all will be brought under the submission of Yahweh. The kind of scheming that happens within our governments, between governments, but also the self-serving scheming that goes on at the workplace, the self-serving scheming that goes on within our families against one another. Therefore, because of this truth, The psalmist encourages, hey, worship him, pay homage to the king, and live holy lives. Meaning, don't get yourself caught up in intrigue. Don't get yourself caught up in the ways of this world. There's one plot we follow, and that's the plot of Yahweh, his redemptive plan, his sovereign will. That is it. And he has made that plain to us. There's no mystery there. He's not being deceitful in his scheme for mankind. He has made it plain to us in his word. Nor must we allow ourselves to forget who is in charge, him, and be overcome by anxiety and stress over the things we can't control in this world. And we do this by not forgetting this last line of the psalm, and perhaps this is the key part of the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is a lot of plotting. There's a lot of scheming going on in America right now. I mean, you go on Twitter, Facebook. You read the headlines. It's there. Trump has his schemes. Biden has his schemes. The Republican parties want to do their thing. Uh, Democrats want to do their things. Libertarians want to do their things. The CDC wants. Everybody wants a piece of the pie. Everybody, the, all the local governors want to do their things, and everybody else under them. Everybody else has their own plans, their own schemes. We need to understand that no party of the government is not corrupt. Both parties want more power. Both parties are, are corrupt. There's not one party who's innocent and the other one is the guilty one. They're both guilty. You and I, were guilty ourselves. But we need to make sure that we don't grow anxious over what we see. We must got to make sure that the current situation, the current events don't overwhelm us. That we, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know what the following weeks and the following months are going to bring. We need to remember that we are citizens of God's kingdom First, even before we are American citizens. This citizenship here in America should be something that we hold loosely, like all things, like all things, to include even our children in this world, recognizing that God gives and he takes away. What we must cling tightly to, though, is the eternal truth of God. And that truth involves us being identified with Christ, in Christ, being citizens of the kingdom. That's the kingdom that matters. And that's the kingdom that conducts, that, that guides our conduct here in this earth, regardless of the circumstances that may unfold. That doesn't dictate how we live, He dictates how we live. So let us be reminded that God's hand is in all of what we see going on, in accordance to His sovereign will and redemptive purposes. Let us be still and know that He is God. God knows who the next president of the United States is. We might not know. We might have our opinions and our thoughts, which is fine, but God knows. We need to trust in that because whoever sits in that house in the coming months, whatever may come of America in the coming years, God ordained it. Whatever evil or suffering you might incur, no matter how horrible, how tragic it is, God ordained it. God made it permissible. He allowed it to happen. Think of Joseph being sold into slavery. God will use evil sometimes for good. So think of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, betrayed by his brothers, and then he gets thrown into prison for a time before God pulls him out. Think of how God used the nations to discipline the nation of Israel. Read the prophets. Think of Assyria who was used by God as his rod of discipline, his rod of wrath, but then later God's like, I'm judging Assyria though for their actions against my people. Think of how God used Judas and his evil intentions to get his son on the cross. Though God allows evil, we need to understand God never endorses evil. He allows it, but he never endorses it. He allowed Eve to eat of the fruit. He could have stopped her. There's no reason for him not to stop her. He he saw that happening. He allowed it to play out, but he never endorses it, and he always holds the sinner accountable. So therefore let us continue to abstain from all things that are unrighteous. We must not think that we can bring glory to God by engaging in something that's unrighteous. That's not what we are called to do. We'll let God handle that part. We are called to live righteously and holy lives in reverence to him. Remembering that one day the son of man, the son of David, he's going to return in the fullness of his father's glory with all of his angels. So we are to live and holiness. And we're also reminded as the call to worship this morning reminded us to the one who endures to the end, to the one who overcomes, which can only happen if you trust Christ in all things, regardless of the circumstances. Don't ever think, ever think that because what's going on out there, what's going on in your life, you have an excuse, you have a reason to be unholy. You never, never have that excuse, and you never have that exception. So only by trusting Christ in all things can we endure to the end. And if we do that, then Christ will give us everlasting life. So at this time, um, Lee is going to come up and prepare uh, communion for us. We're going to enter into a time of communion. If you're new newer visiting here, the way that we do communion here is uh, it's an open table, uh, meaning you don't have to be a member of Hope Community Church. To